This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Also joining me today as a co-host for the hour is Ryan Christopowitz, who's Associate Director and Advisor Solution Specialist at WisdomTree. Please note, Ryan and I are registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel at the Senior Advisor WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of respect affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today talking about risk, uh, some fintech tools to help you manage risk. And Professor Siegel, you've been talking about risk. Uh, you've been talking about risk for the markets and inflation. Um, and we got some pretty hot inflation. Yeah, a- absolutely, uh, Jeremy. Um, the, uh, the PPI... Uh, I mean, that came in pretty much as expected, but the, uh, the CPI, which is the, you know, what affects individuals, that, that was a blowout way above expectations. And not only that, um, it, if you look at what went up, uh, it was not, you can't make those temporary arguments anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, Jeremy, I've been, I've been talking about this for months, more than a year. Um, 6.2% year over year. That, that turns eyes. And I, I think the political pressure is really going to be on, um, Biden and Powell. I mean, take a look. I mean, you, you know, you, you take a look at uh, today's, um, consumer confidence numbers. Uh, 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 University of Michigan, what's called consumer sentiment, um, uh, that, uh, came in at the, at the lowest level in 10 years and it is inflation that people are worried about i mean you can't you know listen the, the virus is is down yeah it's sort of leveling off now in terms of where it is but it's not you can't just say it's the virus anymore it is definitely inflation so that's that, that's going to show tremendous po- political pressure and um the fed will have to move faster um you know i was on cnbc on wednesday um, you know, I said, you know, you, you have two forces here. You don't fight the Fed, but you make the trend your friend. The, the, you know, the, the trend is still up. And uh, and there's no question that um, stocks are the place to be. I mean, they're real assets that we keep on uh, talking about. But the Fed is going to have to move more aggressively. They're going to get one more PPI and CPI before that December meeting. I think uh, that they're finally going to address this in a more realistic way. This is permanent inflation, as we've uh, as we've been talking about um, uh, for for quite a quite a while. You you heard I, I, the the political issues, the hot button issues are are interesting here. You've you've heard Biden say his infrastructure plan is going to address some of these inflation issues. Do do you uh, want to take the, the counter argument to that? <laughs> yeah. Well. I mean, in the long run, we need infrastructure, but that's not going to do anything for the next six to 12 months. There's very little that's going to be done in the next six to 12 months. We're going to start some road building and surfacing. That's not going to have any real uh, effect. I mean, uh, obviously, immediate spending, and, and that's the so-called social infrastructure, which, of course, is, uh, you know, they're trying to map out, and they, they're, not, they're really only on uh, in the second inning on that, you know, that has not been passed by uh, either the House or the Senate. Um, you know, he he can do very, very little. I mean, it is the Fed. I mean, what, what you know, it's the Fed pouring too much money into the system. It's only the Fed that can stop this inflation effectively. Yes, there's some pressure on releasing oil reserves. I mean, you know, uh, gas prices are have gone up a lot with with oil at eighty dollars a barrel, but you know the truth, boy. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's so it's three, uh, you know, three ten now. I mean, it's been over four dollars at one point. So I mean, this is not what's going at record highs. I mean, what what the inflationary push is too much money uh, that was pushed into the economy 
that is now filtering in on every single market that that we have. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, my projection is still when this is all over, we'll have 20 to 25 percent cumulative inflation, not per year, but over a period of, of three to four years. The, the infrastructure plan, and I, I support it, actually, the the hard, what I call the hard infrastructure, which was uh, Biden's going to sign on on Monday. But that will have zero impact on the inflationary pressures uh, that uh, that we face, neither really positive or negative uh, in the short run. In terms of that consumer sentiment, um, I mean, you do see wages. I mean, I think one of the things you, you also see is, is that part of the supply constraints, uh, the demand-driven supply constraints is pushing up wages. Is that going to offset some of that consumer sentiment dip or, or anything on the wage side? And, and sort of the quit rates you saw was sort of the highest in years, uh, highest on record I saw was from the September quits yes. rate. Any Anything there going on on the wage front? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, you, uh, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, this... this uh, this is a great time to be a worker active in the, in the labor market. Now, what's it a bad time for? Uh, you know, I, I work for a big corporation. Last December, they gave me a 3% raise. Well, I face over 6% inflation. So I, I've lost 3% of my purchase. Now, if you're a new employee, you're getting bonuses that are way above that. They're the ones that are actually being captured. But you know, for for everyone that's you know got their three percent raise now, they're, they're going to they're going to be confronting what what is my employer going to give me for twenty twenty two? Oh, is it going to bump it up to four? That's not even very good if I get six percent inflation again. I mean, you see, you know, labor's getting active because they want to keep up with inflation. Cost of living clauses are going to be added. You know, the truth of the matter is, is firms of course want to hold down labor costs, but the truth of the matter is. Their margins are very hard. They they have the demand. They can say, all right, we're going to pay you, you know, five, six percent. And we're going to push it right on to prices. And that's something that's going to happen in 2022 and into 2023. Yeah, it's um, your your comments have been so spot on this year. So it's uh, it's always interesting to get where where you see going. Any sort of final closing thoughts for the week as, as you. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, uh, you know, you see the long bond only one with 50, 55. It's still the hedge of choice. I mean, we may get an inverted uh, yield curve before things are over with the short rate at two to three and the long bond still at two. Uh, you know, uh, you know, one one looks at the 10 year as the only inflationary expectation uh, uh, guidance. Um, by the way, inflation expectations that came out of the Michigan survey were, were, were pretty much uh, in line with last month, but don't forget that survey was taken before this headline hit, and, and it was headlined in every paper, 6.2. So the consciousness of inflation with this latest increase that we got two days ago, I mean, it's, it's suddenly raised. I mean, people are talking about it all the time and are thinking about where do I stand next year? What kind of raise am I going to get? I mean, this is the type of thing that really... Uh, is is uh, is impacting, and uh, you know I don't think it's going to get any better um, <laughs> for the November print that's going to come out second week uh, in December, and then the the Fed will have to address it in its uh, December fifteenth meeting, which I think is actually going to be a uh, very likely a faster taper uh, than what they uh, announced at the last meeting. All right, Professor, thank you so much for starting us uh, starting our show off today. Thank you. Talk to you next week. I'd like to introduce today's uh, guest and my, my co-host again, Ryan Christopowitz, who's uh, associate director, does a lot of uh, client solutions, product solutions work at WisdomTree. And we have Aaron Klein, who's the co-founder, CEO of Riskalyze, a really interesting uh, fintech platform, does a lot of analysis of risk, uh, invented something called the risk number. Aaron, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hey, great to be with you guys today. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, and Ryan, thanks for joining here as a uh, helpful facilitator of our conversation. Aaron, maybe you can tell our listeners uh, a little bit how you came to found Riskalyze and what got you thinking about the entrepreneurial bug to, to, to start the company. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is that I, um, I, started, I started working for my dad in the afternoons after school at the age of 12. He, he, he knew nothing about child labor laws or minimum wage laws. 
Um, and so <laughs> we've all been yeah. there. <laughs> right. Right. And so, so I get, but you know, I learned a lot from him just watching him be an entrepreneur. It was a, it was a, frankly, a really challenging business because it was just like wholesale distribution of automatic security equipment. And it taught me a few interesting things. One was just the utter grit that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And the second was uh, that, you know, everything about business is personal, that if you take care of your clients, like they'll take care of you. So I really got bitten with that bug early and, you know, was was doing a few different things around the Internet, you know, some of them working, some of them not really working out. And then I was I was actually for about four years running global product for a division of an options brokerage firm. And during that time, a buddy of mine who's a financial advisor, I said to him, I said, you know, Mike, it is crazy how the average individual thinks about the concept of risk. And he said, if you think that's crazy, you should see how many of us financial advisors think about it. You know, we just have not had the tools in our profession to really understand, you know, how much risk, um, you know, a client can handle and how to align that with the amount of risk in their investment portfolio. And when we double clicked on that idea, it just became really clear how reliant the industry has been on these qualitative terms like conservative, moderate and aggressive. And, you know, I, I, I at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm sitting here in an office building, you're probably sitting in an office building that, you know, the contractor and the architect, you know, um, they, they communicated not by saying, remember, he wants a moderately conservative hallway leading to his moderately aggressive conference room. Like they used feet and inches in that process. And so um, we really felt like we needed to put the feet and inches into this for financial advisors. And that's kind of how the risk number was born. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's been it's been an amazing journey ever since. You know, here we are 10 years later and we get the, the incredible opportunity of serving tens of thousands of financial advisors across the country who have delivered over 5 million risk numbers to their clients. And um, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's pretty exciting. And I feel really grateful that we have the opportunity to stand behind advisors and, and really um, achieve that mission that we set out on of empowering the world to invest fearlessly. Yeah, Aaron, I mean, speaking of fathers, I'd say that my dad probably has an aggressive risk tolerance when the market was up the day before and a uh, very conservative risk tolerance when the market was down the day before. So uh, why don't you just maybe talk about using that data to make more informed decisions. And then to your point, I mean, last year, think about March and think about, you know, empowering advisors to invest fearlessly. I'd love to hear kind of some of the takeaways on that. Yeah, you know, I, I it's very true that uh, for a lot of the risk tolerance assessments that our industry has been using, you can watch people jump around like crazy with what is considered their risk tolerance because um, effectively what those assessments have been doing is, is stereotyping people based on age. That's about 95% of the solution, right? And and so we, we look at somebody and we go, well, if they're, old, if they're young, they're probably aggressive. And if they're old, they're probably conservative. And then we ask them some questions. And you and I have all seen these questions on some of these you know, risk assessments where they'll say things like, you know, uh, if your portfolio was a car, what kind of car would it be? You know, and if, if you say Honda, they nudge you a little bit more conservatively. And if they say Tesla, they nudge you a little bit more aggressively. And, I don't know, I guess if, if you say VW, do they just like pollute your portfolio with bad funds or something like that? I'm not sure. So I, <laughs> I like another one of those questions is, do you get a thrill out of investing? Well, I don't know about you, like I got a far greater thrill during the second half of 2020 than I did in the first half of 2020. That's the market sentiment question, right? And market sentiment shouldn't have anything to do with our actual risk tolerance. Like risk tolerance is how far can this portfolio fall within a fixed period of time before I'm going to capitulate and I'm going to make an emotionally charged poor decision that could end up blowing up my financial future, right? And that's, that ultimately is the, is the mission that we put our company on was to say, hey, look, if we can help financial advisors create this short-term framework to help their clients understand and react to risk appropriately, that is how you transform a fearful investor who makes bad short-term decisions into a fearless investor who makes really great short-term decisions. And those great short-term decisions are the ultimate input that financial advisors use to deliver great long-term financial outcomes. And and that's what we saw in 2020. You know, in, in, in 2020, the advisors who had prepared their clients for this by talking about risk and making sure that the client's portfolio was aligned with risk had built up the credibility to tell the client at, at you know, 
31 days into that market downturn, right? Hey, listen, I know it feels scary right now, but you know, we, we, we aligned your portfolio with the amount of risk that you were comfortable with. And you know, these are, this is one of those 5% probability events that we talked about, okay? And we can't quantify what's gonna happen next, but here's what we know. The people who sell at the bottom of 5% probability events always do the worst, right? The people who stick with their plan and understand that they've, they've been aligned with the right amount of risk from the beginning, they're the ones who do the best. And ultimately, those advisors that were preparing their clients that way, their clients, you know, as we all know, about 60 days later, were right back where they started if they didn't panic sell 31 days into that market downturn. We're talking with Aaron Klein, the CEO at Riskalyze. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I have Ryan Kristopowitz, who is a associate director at Wisdom Tree. Aaron, it's fascinating when you when you think about the fintech ecosystem and the the problems you're trying to solve. When people come to Riskalyze, there's the risk number, and you're giving uh, five million risk numbers out there. What be beyond that risk management? What are the the key challenges you think you're helping solve for advisors? And then what are the key challenges that you are, are up next? Where are you trying to go with the, yeah. with the platform? Yeah, you know, we, we, we really started through that lens of what I would call client engagement, but with a, with a unique view towards it that client engagement should start through the lens of risk. And, you know, that was a controversial point of view 10 years ago, right? They're like, wait a minute, you're naming the company with the word risk in it? Like, like risk is one of those two things financial advisors are supposed to never talk about. It's not religion and politics, right? It's, it's risk in the short term. And, and, and you know, what, what we said was like, wait a minute. The problem is, is that clients react to risk in the short term. So if we actually engage clients through the lens of risk at the very beginning, we can actually start to build credibility with them and help them understand what is normal behavior for their portfolios and get them aligned with the right portfolio for them. And then... Of course, we need to go do like take a look at their risk capacity and make sure that then that risk number is compatible with their goals and where they're trying to go. But when we get them aligned with who they are as individuals, that's going to serve us really well when we get to the downturn. It, it, it doesn't work to just say, stop watching television, stop opening your mail, just be a long-term investor. We have to engage at that level. And so, you know, then we built from client engagement, we kind of built backwards into portfolio analytics into investment research. We just launched, you know, effectively the Google of, of this industry in regard to investment research and finding funds. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a blast. I was, I was using that product yesterday and spotted quite a few cool Wisdom Tree funds popping up on that list. Uh, but it's, it's really cool how that search engine technology works. We built our way into trading. We built our way into compliance tools for advisors and enterprises alike. Um, so, you know, really at this stage, it's a, it's a risk-centric wealth management platform that, that helps advisors across the life cycle of engaging with clients. And we have built really great integrations into kind of the, what I would call the OS layer of how advisors work, all of the different platforms that they use to implement investment solutions. Uh, we, we built a lot of integrations into those, and we're going to continue to invest in those uh, as well. One of the things that you you guys have done a lot with, and I know Ryan is very heavily involved with with our side. Um, we've been uh, a participant in your your model partner stories. You think about models. Yeah. Um, how how do you see the trend towards advisors using models on Riskalyze, and how do you think about yeah. it versus the individual other things people are doing? What's the the macro view on on model portfolios? Yeah, that's been a really exciting part of that investment research offering to the, the, what we call the Riskalyze Partner Store and the broad you know, category might be named a model marketplace, right? And um, I, you know, I will just say that it's asset managers like Wisdom Tree you know, and others that are really changing the game uh, in asset management because it used to be that, um, you know, there, and, and look, there are still some strategists out there who are providing differentiated asset allocation strategies that um, provide value and are, and are valuable and are worth paying for. But I do think that the day of like, um, you know, every advisor, every client paying, regardless of their needs, paying for, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, constructing the pie chart. Um, I really think that those days are over because asset managers like Wisdom Tree that are actually creating ETF solutions, uh, you know, and other kinds of investment solutions, are saying, hey, like, we've got a great investment team. We create models. 
and we will effectively deliver those models to financial advisors uh, at no additional cost because we're able to monetize that through the the you know underlying investment solutions that we've created. Um, it's it's I think that's ultimately really great for investors. It creates you know more innovation for investors and more um, uh, access to great solutions for investors. And advisors love it as well because it just puts more solutions at their fingertips that they can um, access and. Um, you know, we've just seen a lot of great engagement with that, and um, we're going to continue to invest in that and, and find new ways for advisors to. One of the big trends that we see is advisors wanting to mix and match models from different asset managers uh, because they, they want to show their clients that they're, um, you know, not putting all their eggs in one basket. But I love how advisors, um, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of advisors, for example, who are very bought into the wisdom tree story around some of the solutions that you provide there. And they're able to demonstrate to their clients how they can craft a multi-asset manager portfolio that provide that 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 takes a piece of that wisdom tree story and solves a particular problem for the client in the in the portfolio allocation. And that's it's just great to be able to equip advisors with quick access to that through uh, the Riskalyze Partner Store. And we love our partnership uh, in that regard. Yeah, and Aaron, before I ask you another question, I just want to comment and say, um, you know, how much not only do I agree on it, but I've always said that the, the you, you guys just get the advisor. I would say that there's a lot of misconceptions about model portfolios out there and the way that you've marketed its models as a true north and where the your advisors can customize them to act in the best interest of each and every one of their own clients. It's really done a great job with that model market center. We're certainly Thank excited you. to be a part of it. Uh, the question I had for you, though, is um, you had mentioned integrations, and one that we were extremely uh, excited to see was about our uh, friends at OnRamp. I didn't know if you had any uh, comments uh, on that or wanted to elaborate on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a really interesting one that uh, that is taking shape, and, and OnRamp is taking the lead on building that one, and, and they're doing a great job of it. You know, OnRamp, a crypto education and, and kind of access platform to, to help advisors navigate crypto. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. We're, we're doing a lot of thinking about what we need to do and what we need to build to, to serve advisors when it comes to crypto. Um, and I would say there's no massive I, I do not see some kind of massive movement towards advisors allocating their clients into crypto in a huge way. Um, I think, frankly, advisors, and I know we just are starting to see the first crypto ETFs start to come onto the scene. That's going to be a big part of advisors actually being willing, I think, to, to, to do that, because when you've got a good product solution that you can use, um, that, that will um, drive uh, you know, a, a lot of that. Uh, but what we do see across the board is advisors needing to deal with the fact that the client or the prospect already owns crypto. And we need to include that in the analysis to think about the, you know, where the client is, whether they're on track, whether they're aligned with their risk number. And, you know, some people just tend to like, you know, I, I don't know, dismiss that and just say, well, that's easy. Um, speaking in riskalyzed language and risk number language, like they're all a risk 99. Okay. That, that's somewhat true. Okay. Like, like I, I, I'm pretty sure almost all of the coins that are trading today are probably risk 99, but they behave very differently from each other. They're not correlated with each other, and therefore they correlate or anti-correlate very differently with the overall portfolio. And so I think it's really interesting to be able to. We're we're working on ways to, and, and OnRamp is one of those one of those integrations we're working on to get more crypto coins uh, analyzable on on the Riskalyze platform because you know ultimately it's about advisors being able to meet their clients where they're at. You know, I will say that's controversial with some financial advisors, okay? So I, I had one advisor ask me, I mean, if rocks were correlated with the portfolio, would you, would you put, you know, analyze those on Riskalyze? Like so gold? I said, if the SEC declares them to be securities and I can get a data feed for them, yes. And, oh, wait a minute, isn't that what gold is? Like, isn't that GLD? Like, like yes, it's a rock. And the SEC has declared it to be a security now, and we have a data feed for it. So, so there you go. Uh, I think I, you know, our mission has always been we're not going to tell the financial advisor what a good or a bad investment is. Uh, our job is to make sure we can analyze what's out there and help the advisor meet their client where they're at. I think one of the funniest memes. I don't. Well, I don't know. I mean, we maybe get some hate hate mail on this, but the the best memes on the on the crypto rocks that were going for hundreds of thousands of dollars that were the JPEG of the of the rocks. So I don't. I don't know about asking for a risk of lies on that, Aaron. But it is interesting. Uh, yeah. 
It is. It is. Um, I, I the the crypto baskets and crypto with equity, you know, equities and bonds and traditional modeling. I think is a really interesting thing, and and I, I think you're right that everybody would just assume it's going to be a 99 risk number. But as as you do models that are not just only focused on like a Bitcoin and Ether and others, but you know, blended in portfolios and three percent, five percent. How does that change the overall risk? Um, you know, that's something we've been very public on working with OnRamp yeah. to do those kind of models. And, you know, that is a, I think it's a need in the market. It's hard to access. It's hard to incorporate in a realistic way. And uh, you know, I, it's, it's great to hear that you guys are integrating. And, you know, we're going to be watching the risk numbers as you evolve those over time very carefully. I think it's, I think what's interesting about it is, and what's hard about it is that a lot of advisors look at it and go, what are you investing in? Like, what are you actually investing in? And one of the most important things to really understand crypto is that you're actually investing in the liquidity of the underlying network, right? You're, you're investing in the, the usage level of the blockchain network that that particular coin is powering. And, you know, if you, so all you have to really do is take a look at whether or not you think, you know, developers are going to build interesting applications on top of those blockchain networks. And then you're simply going long on whether or not you think that, you know, that, that there will be interesting applications built on those networks. If so, um, you're basically like kind of getting a little bit of an equity call, you might say, on the value of the applications being built on that network. And, you know, is it something that should be 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of a portfolio? Probably not. Is it something that could be three to five percent of a portfolio and provide some anti-correlated, uh, you know, risk reduction to the overall picture? It's really interesting to look at those possibilities. I agree with you. Um, Aaron, you, you guys just did uh, in, in sort of the return from COVID, uh, trying to get back to normal. You guys held your uh, FI summit. Um, do you want to give any highlights or things from the from the summit that you took away as sort of interesting insights? Well, I mean, it definitely was um, interesting to run one of I think only three or four in person events in the in the entire industry. You know, uh, uh, that fall and. Uh, there were times we felt like we were kind of like Han Solo running through the Death Star just trying to get through the blast doors before they closed, you know. But uh, but we made it through, and uh, uh, it was a fantastic event. We had like 850, um, you know, great customers there and uh, just had a blast celebrating them and celebrating the impact that they're making on, on, uh, on the world. And um, and had a bunch of great uh, great folks there uh, to join us as well. Some great speakers, um, and uh, I mean, one of the highlights for me, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, spoke. Um, you know, we really believe in in kind of like injecting data into decision making, and you know, who better to talk on uh, on that? The guy who injected data into decision making in baseball, right? So uh, it was a blast of a conference for sure. Ryan, you were you were there as well. Any uh, from your side? I was, oh, I, I was fortunate there. I know the uh, audience can't see me, but I do have my Riskalyze water bottle. Enjoyed the warm weather, <laughs> uh, and and a very great motivational uh, opening um, by you, Aaron. So I thought that the fearless investing, and it really uh, it was it was a phenomenal uh, job, especially Thanks. seeing New York City, and you know I I had a studio there, and just seeing yeah. uh, the places. Um, for sure. And I'll, and I'll say that it wasn't just the audience of, uh, of your traditional RA, which perhaps might have been the beginning of your start. You can correct uh, me if I'm wrong, but yeah. a lot of news around uh, independent broker dealer, dealers that you've been signing at the enterprise level. It'd be great to um, kind of just hear about you know, that momentum and, and just the audience uh, that was there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, so, so thank you for that, by the way, on the opening. It was, it was definitely one of those things where you know, here we're holding the first, you know, summit in two years and, um, you know, uh, just kind of we had, the team was reflecting on everything that we had all said goodbye to, you know, the prior year. And uh, and so, you know, somebody said, you know, it's time to say hello. And that became the theme of the opening was like, you know, we've all been through this thing that felt like a train tunnel that had no end. And, you know, we've kind of come out the other end, not not saying everything's over. We've still got challenges in the world. But like, you know, hey, like, let's let's at least celebrate that, like, science has given us vaccines, therapeutics and ways to, like, solve this problem. And like the world is coming out the other end of the pandemic phase of this and it's going to become more endemic and, and we need to deal with it as a world. 
and we've got the tools to deal with it. Science has given us that, and it's it's time to kind of celebrate that and and say hello and like come back to the world. And so um, I, I'm excited about that. Excited we're able to do that. And yeah, in terms of um, you know enterprise partners, it's really interesting because we started life. Uh, you know, Mike McDaniel, my co-founder, was an LPL rep, right? Uh, and so we started life working with some of those IBD advisors and working with RIAs. But we started very much with the small end of the market and just kind of working bottoms up. And we really built the business that way. And we're st- we still feel an incredible sense of loyalty to those, you know, w- you know, one single solo advisors, uh, two, three advisor offices, whether they're in the IBD space or whether they're in the RIA space. We just feel a great sense of loyalty because they made Riskalyze, you know, who it is today. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've had a lot of demand from enterprises, as you as you mentioned, you know, firms like, uh, you know, Cetera and Mariner Wealth, you know, one of the large RAs in the in, in the world, Hightower, CapTrust, uh, some of the some of the great firms like that. Uh, and we're just so privileged uh, to have the opportunity to serve them and, um, and 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 create great partnerships there. Atria is another big, you know, broker dealer, uh, you know, up and coming firm that uh, that 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 joined us there as well. So, you know, just a bunch of great, you know, enterprise class partners, and it's definitely um, accelerated our business, um, you know, and we just figure if we stay focused on delivering great solutions for financial advisors, um, you know, all of that will will follow, and that's that's kind of how it's played out. When you think about the the uh, the future for your firm, there, there's I think you guys have done a, a recent fundraising from HG Capital. If I'm if I'm getting that right, is there as you think about building a, a long term uh, sort of uh, company, how how are you thinking about your your future there? Yeah, um, we 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 didn't actually raise any capital into the company, but we did recapitalize the company. It was a fantastic transaction and a really exciting one. And, and basically, what that means is. You know, I and, and, and the rest of our management team partnered with this amazing firm called HG. They're one of the world's premier software and services investors. They're the largest in Europe. They manage $37 billion, you know, in assets. Uh, and we partnered with them to uh, buy out all of our early investors, our early angel investors, a uh, firm called FTV Capital that invested in 2016, you know, and, and it was it was a fantastic transaction. I mean, our earliest angel investors made 50x their money. Um, you know, FTV did like a 4x plus on their on their investment, you know, in 2016. So uh, it was a great transaction for them. But, you know, I just kind of felt like I was in the third inning of a baseball game. I feel like it's early days still for us. And, you know, I, I was looking for a long-term capital partner that really wanted to invest in that vision and help us drive to the future. And now, you know, that's what we've got. I, I'm, I'm really, really excited about it because, F, you know, HG, uh, you know, they have portfolio companies they've been invested in for 15, 17 years. They're really a long-term. They've created the ability to invest out of successive funds. They've created the the ability to be a long-term investor in that regard, and that really aligns with our vision, our values, what we're trying to build for the advisors and the enterprises that we serve. And so, um, yeah, incredibly excited about that because we now have this deep-pocketed capital partner who is, you know, uh, asking the questions, how, how can we invest in the future, right? How can we help, ri- through Riskalyze, like place this big long-term bet on the future of financial advice? And the future of financial advisors, and um, we just could not be more aligned uh, with our new partners there. Uh, that advisors are the irreplaceable core of how we're going to empower the world to invest fearlessly. Well, with with HG coming out of Europe, um, do you think that yeah. means there's an opportunity to bring Riskalyze to Europe? Is that part of the the future roadmap? It's possible. You know, they they, they did come out of Europe. They they have a, a very strong office in New York, and so we. But but the partners that are running the deal work out of both London and New York. Uh, I you know we have always felt a great degree of demand from uh, Europe, from other other locations, and we have a smattering of customers who uh, use Riskalyze in Canada, in the UK, in Australia, in South Africa. Uh, and you know it's interesting. They're 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 buying Riskalyze on a credit card in U.S. dollars, and they're using Riskalyze aligned for U.S. markets. Uh, but they're kind of like you know making it work for their local market, even though it's not optimized for that. 
I would tell you that like if we're going to do that and, and we don't have a date certain when we will, but but when and if we do that, we're going to do it right and enter that market in a really thoughtful and and focused way. And I certainly do think we have the right capital partners to, to help us do that if, uh, if if that's in the cards. It's funny, Aaron. I think there's a lot of similarities between Wisdom Tree as a firm and Riskalyze, as I've been learning about you guys. And I mean, number one, our CEO talks about kind of creating a forever firm in the sense that, you know, we want to be around for a long time. And I yeah. want to say congratulations. Uh, you had showed at the conference, you know, year 10 of a 100-year journey um, yeah. plus, and that's just amazing. And I'd say the second thing that I've noticed is the culture at Wisdom Tree, our CEO has talked yeah. about hiring happy people. And at Wisdom yeah. Tree, you know, the manager doesn't need to be around for the employee to be doing the right thing and to be super happy, uh, you know, just about being at Wisdom Tree. And it was extremely evident to me. And I know you know this, but it might also help to hear that, uh, that you know, the employees at Riskalyze were super uh, happy, uh, you know, yeah. even if they're just by themselves. And so what is the, you know, as a, you know, the co-founder and CEO, yeah. the culture that you've created? I mean, I'd love to hear your comments on that and, and, and what you've done to really um, to, to get this uh, hundred year company in place. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and thank you for saying that. I, I, I gotta say, I've been a fan of what, you know, the kind of culture that Jonathan has been trying to build at, at wisdom tree as well. And, and, uh, I think that's super cool. I, you know, that, that piece that you talked about with happy people, you know, we actually go really deep in how we describe this and you can actually read all of this at riskalyze.com slash values. We have nine core values. And one of them is teamwork. And I will, I will be honest, like teamwork used to be one of our mushy values. We kind of updated and deepened and like wrote out what we meant by each of these values and, you know, in, in early 2020. And teamwork is no longer the mushier value. And one of the things that we realized as we were talking about it, I'm like, what kinds of people do our culture kind of reject? And we came up with four. Like there's four kinds of people that our culture just kind of rejects. It's like organ rejection. It just doesn't work, right? And they are you know, um, people with a victim mentality, okay? They're narcissists who think it's all about them. They are jerks who tear down others, and they're mercenaries who don't care about our mission. And, you know, I, I, I got to be honest, like there have been a time or two, we've had, a, we've had a really good batting average with hiring, but there have been a time or two that we've hired people who are two of those things or even three of those things all in one, right? And um, so it, it, we have, we have uh, really spent a lot of time being thoughtful about how we apply our values to our hiring. And it can make our hiring a tough process. We have people who come in and they're like, oh, it's a little harder to hire somebody here than it is in, in other companies. And I'm like, yep, intentionally so, because we, we want to, we try to make it as, as, as unbureaucratic as possible. But yeah, you're going to have to go evaluate and fill out where you have evidence on this person's compatibility with our nine values across like 15 different angles on those values. You've got to fill all that out and prove to us that you understand how that person is compatible with our values. Then we also have what we call the nine values team, which is a cross-functional team that goes and does a 30-minute interview with that person to, to take a cross-functional assessment and go, I'm not going to be blinded by this software engineer's brilliance. I'm a salesperson or I'm a customer service person and I'm looking only for their cultural fit with our organization and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assess that. And, and that comes to me still for every hiring decision. Like here, you know, here's the assessment that the hiring managers made. Here's the assessment that the nine values team has made. And, you know, I don't, the secret is I don't have to do a whole lot with those approvals. But just the simple fact that both of those assessments have to get done and then they come to me in an email means that we don't have low quality people who are not good fits for our culture, uh, you know, getting, getting pushed through the hiring process here. And it's really worked for us and it, it shines through in the people, um, you know, that, that, that embody our organization out there. And so thank you for saying that, but we've seen the same thing with, with the wisdom tree colleagues we've gotten to meet. And I think, you know, again, that goes to what kind of culture you want to build as a firm. That's great. We're, we're talking with Aaron Klein, the, the co-founder CEO of Riskalyze. Aaron, if, there, if somebody snuck through the process and, and was able to uh, keep their, their, their true self hidden through your process, where, where, uh, how did you identify them along the way? Is, it, is there a, a part of your process that once they got into the system, but they, they hid their, uh, their true self that you're, you're weeding these people out? It's happened a few times. And, and you know, basically, it just becomes very evident. 
you know, and, and it becomes very evident that like um, there's there's for lack of a better term, there's organ rejection going on. Right. Like like th- there, this is not working because this person is engaging in those kinds of behaviors. And so, of course, we we try to work productively with that person and coach them on that and show them. But but there's you know, if you think about some of those things I just talked about, victim mentality, jerks who tear down others, narcissists who think it's all about them, mercenaries who don't care about the mission. That's kind of pretty innate. Right. And it's kind of it's not really something that you can just choose not to have a victim mentality mindset or you can just choose not to be a mercenary. Right. Like those are the kinds of things that like are, are make up as a people, or, you know, as, as people. And I often say to the team when I do mission and values training, I'm like, we're just a culture of people who like love what we do. And it may sound like a little schmaltzy, but like we actually care about the mission and we love what we do. There are organizations out there that are literally designed to employ people who hate their jobs, like like the DMV. Okay, it's an organization that is absolutely designed for people who hate their jobs. There are ways for people who hate what they do to make money and put food on their table. Okay, it's just not our organization. There will be organ rejection there, and it will not work. And so it becomes obvious and. You know, we yes, we've had to manage people out of the organization because of that, because it's like, yeah, I don't know how this slipped through. Let's try to learn from that. But like, clearly, this person is a bit of a mercenary who doesn't care about our mission or they've got a victim mentality. And it's just not going to work here. There's going to be a better organization for them. Ryan, uh, the um, I know you guys uh, have have one of the places where you guys interact a lot on is social media. And uh, Aaron, I know you guys do a lot as well on social media. How do you think about uh, can, is is that been a good source for connecting to your advisors to clients? How how have you built that uh, that function at at Riskalyze? Yeah, you know, it, it really has been, and that happened very organically. Um, you know, um, uh, I, I will tell you that I don't think that the uh, the PR communications team always really appreciates that I have a Twitter account, but um, but they, you know, they, they recognize that it, it has some benefits too. But uh, just, you know, you got to make them sweat a little bit, right? Like that's what they're paid to do. So, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, social media is, I think so interesting because it's such a powerful um, tool for making sure that your that your message is heard, and everything used to you know look I, I think that like the the press the media we have a actually a, a pretty high quality I think industry trade press in our profession um, we have a lot of reporters who compete really hard to um, cover you know industry news well. And, um, you know, and that that's there's some professions where that's just non-existent. So I, I, I think we can count our blessings there. But I, I just think that there's something about it, it. It keeps everybody honest and holds everybody accountable when there's something about the ability to kind of um, talk directly to the audience of folks that you're talking to. And so, for example, when the HG deal got announced, like I was very purposeful about going out there and communicating what it was about. OK. I, I didn't know exactly what the press would write about it, but my goal was to make sure that people understood how I was thinking about it, you know, because some of these deals that you've seen where uh, fintech companies get uh, uh, acquired in some way, okay, um, you know, the, the, the CEO who perhaps has, has been a driver of product innovation leaves the company, and, and then, you know, uh, the results have not been that great in some of those cases. In some of those cases, things have worked out. But in some of those cases, the results have not been great. So I know I've, I've heard our customers, you know, year after year after year say, don't, don't, you, don't you quit on us. Like, we, we, we got to keep innovating this. We've got work to do. We got we to gotta keep, you know, keep this on the right track. And I love what I do. So for me, it was about communicating uh, particularly that, like, you know, just because you see this financial transaction happening with our cap- capital structure does not mean that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Like, I actually rolled the vast majority of what I own and riskalyze over in the, in the new transaction. And the vast majority of my net worth is tied up with this company's future. So um, I'm, I'm here. Like, I'm going to be CEO of Riskalyze for as long as I'm having a blast and being effective in my job. And uh, I, I absolutely love what I do. I, I will say I had a bunch of people who were saying to me, Aaron, when are you going to sell this and go sit on the beach? And, you know, I thought about that for a moment. And I'm like, you know, that sounds really appealing for like a week. 
And then I'm pretty sure what would happen is that the people on the beach would be like, who is this guy who keeps talking about objectives and like good communication and like core values? Let's get together and throw him off the beach. So uh, I, I've just kind of come to the conclusion that like, that is not for me. Um, and I, I, I love what I do. And just it's an incredible privilege to continue to be able to serve the advisors that we're privileged to serve. You know, Aaron, speaking on, uh, you know, Twitter and, and your authentic self on there and, and values from the previous conversation we just had, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, we were very, uh, I was uh, thrilled to learn about and wanted, uh, you know, the audience to hear a little bit more is about how you got started with uh, Hope Takes Root. And um, I was laughing, uh, you, you, you made the joke, you show your family sometimes and you made the joke about eeny, meeny, miny and how you want no mo kids. And so uh, <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear uh, all about all of that, that, that background. Sure, that okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I, 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 I do I do joke that we've, we've renamed our, our three kids eeny, meeny, and miny because there ain't going to be no mo. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're awesome kids. We, we, we love them to death, but, um, I think we are good with three. Um, and my wife and I are very unified on that front. Um, but, but we love them to death. Um, the, the, our kids are 17, 14 and 12. Um, you know, we, uh, we have adopted all three times and, um, it's just, it, it, it's one of those things we were never diagnosed with the reason we couldn't have kids biologically. It just didn't happen immediately. And we just felt like this was kind of my youngest sister was adopted from Romania. So we were really comfortable, understood the international adoption process. And so that just became, uh, you know, kind of plan a for us. And our first son is the 14 year old was born in South Korea. Um, our daughter is 12. She was born in Ethiopia. Those two came home at eight months old and then. The, our, our trip to Ethiopia to bring our daughter home really helped us see what true poverty is for the first time. You know, I, I don't want to knock anybody's experience here in the United States, but like in a lot of cases, our poor people have iPhones, right? Like, like you've not truly seen poverty until you're in like sub-Saharan Africa and you're seeing that level of poverty. And, you know, and, 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 and when we saw that, it just kind of changed our lives. So that got us involved in some nonprofit work started out with supporting a school project in Ethiopia, took us back to the country a number of times. On one of those trips back, we met the kid who became our oldest, uh, and he's now 17. He's been in the country for about five, going on six years. Uh, and uh, he, he's an amazing kid as well. And so that's, that's our three. Um, along the way there, one of the things that, that happened, you know, we, we, we helped the school project grow from like 250 to like 1,600 kids, and it's doing really, really well. It ends at eighth grade. And we were just thinking about, like, well, what happens to these kids after eighth grade? Because, like, maybe the top 5% might go to university. And, you know, the, the, the rest of them are really supposed to go to some kind of vocational school, but that's all tuition-based. And many of them do not have the, um, the money to, to do vocational school. And so the first thought was, well, why don't we just start a vocational school that's tuition-free? And then you think about that, and you're like, okay, well, now I'm on a treadmill. I just got to raise money to, you know, to try to keep a vocational school open that is free. So we came up with a crazy idea that just might work, and we're, we're, we're working really hard on it right now. Hope Takes Root has helped to raise capital for and fund a for-profit business in Ethiopia that is building – basically rudimentary marketing automation tools for Ethiopian shopkeepers and small business owners. And so it's a for-profit business, but it is funneling a minimum of 20% of revenue. And right now it's way more than 20% of revenue because there's almost no revenue, but we still have like five of these uh, individuals into what we call student workers, student interns. And so we are paying these kids who have absolutely no skills. They're orphans, vulnerable kids that have no skills. They're not qualified to get a job. But this is a vocational school hiding in plain sight as a for-profit business. And the idea is to actually get it to be profitable and then just plow all those profits back into expanding the impact on these orphans and vulnerable kids. And it's effectively a vocational program teaching them about sales, customer service, technology, coding, you know, technical support, all those things. Uh, you know, but hiding in plain sight is a for-profit business. So we're, we're pretty excited about it, you know, one step at a time, but we're, we're excited to get it to the next step of profitability. For people who want to get involved in that, like what is the best way to, to do that? Like it's, is there a, a group that's sort of centralizing it or they just find, I see it's, it's linked in your Twitter profile as hope takes root, yeah, but any, it's hope takes root.com. And you can, you can check that out. And, 
we absolutely like we probably have to raise another i don't know hundred thousand to hundred and fifty thousand dollars of capital to get that to profitability um and you know it's a it's a um it's a charitable donation to do so because what we're doing is we're taking these charitable um donations that we've raised um and we're investing those in the business but there's only three shareholders in the business and all three of us have signed uh, a stipulation that if we're ever forced to take a profit distribution from this business, we'll just donate it right back into the Hope Takes Root Fund and circulate the money right back into the into the nonprofit fund. So um, it's 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 a pretty cool structure of trying to use capitalism to defeat poverty. Uh, and and from my perspective, nothing is more inspiring than that. Like like capitalism is has been one of the greatest forces on earth to eliminate poverty in our world and reduce poverty in our world. And um, I just want to see us invest more in using capitalism to defeat poverty. Very intriguing and, and interesting concept. So I commend you for all those efforts there. So that's really exciting. Um, Ryan, any, as we're sort of winding down, any closing thoughts as uh, hard to follow that comment up uh, and that, that comment stream <laughs> on Hope Takes Root. But as you think about closing with uh, the, the work you've been doing with Riskalyze and, and models and generally anything else, any closing thoughts from your side? Well, first, I mean, yeah, Aaron can't be on a beach. He's got way too many great things going on. So uh, I, know, I know he won't be. And, uh, stay off the beach. Yeah, and I know we're coming up on time here, but you alluded to discovery before, Aaron. I would yeah. love to just get – it seemed pretty futuristic. Uh, why don't you just tell the audience what it's about? 30 sure, seconds. Absolutely. You know, so brand, brand new product launch for us. I feel like it's the biggest thing we've launched in like the last four years. And, um, you know, discovery is effectively a search engine that that um, that searches the universe of ETFs, mutual funds, even stocks, but we're going to expand it out to, to more and more investment solutions as well. Uh, but it's it's you know financial advisors are using it when they don't know exactly which fund they're looking for. They're trying to solve a particular problem in a client's portfolio. Uh, and, uh, and and need to find a solution. We, we're out of time. Aaron Kleinsman, a lot of fun. Ryan Christopowitz, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to Behind the Markets. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.